Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast about people who are nuts and like space, or are nuts about space. That's probably more appropriate. Uh, and joining us, joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Um, I think you'd probably put it fairly succinctly there. Actually, I just forget the space. It's people who are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that, that would make for a much bigger audience, I imagine. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. Now, today, Fred, we're going to be talking about a few uh, rather interesting things. The New Horizons mission, which uh, took all those amazing uh, photos of Pluto, and, 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 and they're still sifting through that incredible amount of data, now looks like it's headed for a target that's um, uh, providing them with more than they would have anticipated. A little bit of luck has gone into this uh, process as well. We'll talk about that. Investigating UFOs. It seems the Pentagon is involved. Hello. And the Star of Bethlehem. We'll see if we can explain that, seeing we're uh, very close to Christmas. Uh, but first, Fred, New Horizons. We know about that mission because it's been a, a, an amazing year for NASA in regard to that particular mission, but many other things. Uh, um, with with all that data and those amazing pictures and the flyby video of, of Pluto that most people have seen now. Um, but it uh, looks like a, a bit of luck has worked their way uh, as as a part of the next phase of um, of the of the whole mission. Uh, that's that's correct, Andrew. And, and just to recap, of course. Uh, uh, as you said, um, most of what we now know about Pluto came from the, the flyby of New Horizons, which actually took place, uh, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's nearly two and a half years ago. Oh, it's, really? Um, it, it, <laughs> you know, July... that's, isn't, I, I just find it so amazing how your brain can sort of make assumptions on your behalf and, and be so yeah. wrong. <laughs> yes, that's right. July, but I can July live with 14, it. I can live with it. July the 14th, 2015 was the date of the flyby. I suppose the because we, we're still talking about it and there's been yeah, news, news right. releases this year about some of the discoveries and, and that kind of thing. It's just, uh, it's always in your mind. Uh, I, exactly right. Um, and, and of course, we've had, you know, the emphasis has been on space. We had all the stuff with Comet Churyum of Gerasimenko. Uh, that was more than a year ago now as well. Mm. And uh, most recently, the end of the Cassini mission, which um, was, I think, one of the most triumphant of all, um, well, of all robotic space missions. It was a NASA ESA ISA probe, ISA being the Italian Space Agency. But New Horizons, returning to the plot, is a NASA project. Uh, flew by Pluto, uh, as I said, a couple of years ago or so, and was then um, essentially retargeted to intercept a tiny little distant icy asteroid, which still rejoices only in the name of MU69. 
Uh, it's uh, an object belonging to the, the Kuiper belt, that belt of uh, icy objects of which Pluto is now known to be one of the larger members, uh, beyond the orbit of Neptune, so a trans-Neptunian object. So, um, okay, so what, what happened was uh, shortly after, <clears throat> after um, New Horizons departed from the vicinity of Pluto, it, its thrusters were fired to basically put it on a trajectory that would intercept uh, the orbit of MU69. And the expected date for that interception is pretty well just a year down the track from where we are now, 1st of January 2019. Um, meanwhile, <clears throat> excuse me, meanwhile, astronomers on the ground have done all they can to learn as much as they can about this tiny object. Uh, remember, this thing's six and a half billion kilometers away. Mm. Um, and it is just a tiny speck of light when you see it within the Hubble Space Telescope. But there are ways that astronomers have of uh, exploring objects like this in a little bit more detail. Uh, all the Hubble gives you basically is its position, its brightness, and some information about its color. And we know from that that it's a very red object, and that's typical of the kinds of things that we see in the Kuiper Belt. There are many objects that are reddish in color, and that is thought to be due to the effect of cosmic rays on some of the organic materials that are on the surface of these objects. So it's got the typical red coloring, but that's about it as far as um, you know, just normal Hubble telescope observations can produce. So, excuse me, you have to resort to uh, other trickery. And one of them, and I, I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about this before, is what's called the occultation method of exploring an object like this. So what you do is you look in all the star catalogues and you work out when there is a time that a distant star and the object you're trying to investigate, in this case MU69, and the Earth are in an exact straight line. Because what's going to happen is that as MU69 passes between the Earth and the distant star, the star's light will diminish. And if you put observers uh, widely spaced over the surface of the Earth, <coughs> excuse me uh, again, Andrew, uh, if you put observers widely spaced over the surface of the Earth, you can um, see the timing for when the objects, uh, when the when the object passes in front of the star or occults it, and then when the star reappears again as the object and new 69 passes in front of it. That's a long-winded way of saying that you can actually map the shape of an object like MU69 just by having observers dotted all over the place. And in fact. In the case of MU69, I think many of them were in South America. I think Argentina was one of the starring nations in the, these occultation observations. So that produced uh, some interesting results. And uh, in fact, we've just really re received the, uh, the news uh, of some of the details of those results. And first and foremost, it looks like uh, MU69 is not just a simple lump of stuff. Mm. Uh, it is probably something a bit like the shape of Comet Churyumov Gerasimenko, uh, which you'll remember um, was shaped like a rubber duck. That's it was right. About four kilometers long. It was made principally of ice. Uh, the, 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 there is uh, thinking now that perhaps MU69 is a similar shape. Um, and we give a technical term for this. We call it a contact binary, because what it means is two things have come together, which make a binary, but they're actually touching. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we 
saw from gravitational measures on Comet churyumov gerasimenko 69p, 67p, I beg your pardon, uh, that um, that it was uh, made of two objects that are basically stuck together. So there is something, it's hard, I think, with the observations that have been made to eliminate the possibility that what we have here is two objects which are in orbit around one another. But the thinking seems to be that it is actually a contact binary. So it's something the same shape as, uh, as Comet 67P, well, a.k.a. Churium of Karasimenko. You, know you know what they say, Fred. What, what is that? If it what looks, do they say? If it looks like a duck. <laughs> And sounds like a duck. Sounds like a duck. <laughs> it's probably a duck. And, and this one, uh, yeah, certainly uh, has the telltale signs. How close are they going to get? Uh, it's within, I think, if I remember rightly, it's about 3,000 kilometres. Here we are, mm. 3,500 kilometres. Okay. Uh, so if it is a duck, we will know about it uh, because that is near enough for the high-resolution cameras on board New Horizons to, to really resolve the detail. Remember that... Um, when when we passed by uh, comet, well, or when Rosetta was in orbit around comet churyumov karasimenko that was an object that was only three, I think, four and a half kilometres long, mm. whereas um, MU69 is about 10 times bigger than that. It's somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 kilometres wide. Uh, but, but wait, there's more. Ooh. Because there is just a hint in some of the data that it may also have a moon. So that this object, as well as being a contact binary, might have uh, a moon as well, or a moonlet, some tiny object that is uh, in orbit and sort of well separated from uh, from uh, from MU69. We don't know yet. This is mm. almost at the level of uh, speculation, but it seems to be supported by some of the, you know, by some of the occultation observations. Okay, well, uh, that would be quite a find and, and would certainly be. would add um, such an amazing element to this mission. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, that sort of luck doesn't happen very often, does it? No, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, from what we know about these distant objects, there could be more. They could, it could actually have rings around it, yeah. um, rings of dusty material. Uh, that would be brilliant if the, you know, if the flyby revealed that as well. Uh, it would be, look, it would be such a coup for... Alan Stern, who's the mission scientist for New Horizons, um, a delightful guy, um, somebody we've met and uh, and talked to, and uh, very keen to uh, exploit every last ounce of uh, information that comes back from New Horizons, which is actually now, you know, not it's certainly not the most distant. Uh, spacecraft that has ever been launched that's Voyager 1 which mm. is way beyond the distance of New Horizons but you can safely say that uh, New Horizons is um, the most distant object act, uh, sorry the most distant human made object that is act, uh, actively exploring other worlds or other places so um, really a big triumph for NASA and for the mission scientists for uh, for New Horizons. And hopefully uh, we'll see some dramatic images in about a year's time. 1st of January 19, uh, 2019, which uh, yeah, is not that far away when you're talking astronomical time. But uh, yeah, and I think it's very clever that um, NASA staff, as in government employees, have picked a public holiday where they'll get paid triple time to <laughs> analyse the data. So that's, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, um, 
Somehow, Andrew, I have a feeling that these guys are not actually in it for the money. I've got a feeling you're right. They probably do it whether they got paid or not. Mm, just like you and me. Now, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly be reporting on that in, um, in a little over a year and see, see what they come up with and see if a duck is in fact a duck with, um, with a moon. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy Uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Well, Fred, it had to happen one day. We had to talk about UFOs. I'm surprised that it's nearly two years and we've managed to avoid the topic. But here we are. And and it's based on a report that suggests that the Pentagon has been running a, a secret multi-million dollar program to investigate UFOs, according to a report in the New York Times. So are they or aren't they? Well, the, the evidence seems to be that um, there probably was some sort of operation. It, it's uh, said to have begun in 2007 and been closed down in 2012. Uh, the idea was, uh, and I think this was raised by um, a senator uh, who's who was actually the senator for Nevada. And, of course, Nevada is where the famous Area 51 yep. uh, classified U.S. Air Force Base was. I think it still is there uh, and has been the centre of all kinds of speculation about what might be, uh, what might be, uh, what might have been found there and picked up there. And there's supposed to have been a, you know, a, an alien space person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, look, I'm shaking my head. I, I, have an, I have an alternative conspiracy theory. I think it's Nevada <laughs> tourism. <laughs> 
Naturally. <laughs> so let's make up a story that'll bring tourists. Boom, boom. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a good idea. Yeah. But anyway, it was the senator for Nevada who kicked this off. Um, and it, it's come about because of a, a few reports that have come back from basically U.S. military personnel, most notably uh, airmen, and in fact, most notably uh, Navy airmen, uh, or air persons, sorry, I should say, who have spotted um, objects behaving strangely in the atmosphere and within range of their sights. And it's not clear to me whether there is hard and fast radar evidence for these things, but they're talking about objects that uh, fly at in, in incredible speeds at 80,000 feet, uh, and then, you know, in almost no time at all, drop down to uh, very close to the surface of the Earth, that go at speeds that seem to defy any kind of propulsion mechanism that uh, actually, uh, you know, that, that basically um, have maneuverability that would uh, would squash any human uh, occupant because of the G-forces involved. So that's what sparked this thing off. Um, they have re documented, as far as we understand from the New York Times, uh, what, uh, several curious incidents that are not explained. Um, and, but basically, it's been wound up. Uh, it is said to have cost the Department of Defense something like 20 million, uh, translated into Australian dollars. Uh, actually, no, I beg your pardon, that's US dollars, Twenty, about 20 million US dollars. Um, uh, that, that's in, about in 300 its... trillion Australian dollars. Just... <laughs> that's right. Sorry, I can't do the maths for that in my head. But you can... I might be slightly off on that calculation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it was shut down. Um, but, but apparently, uh, you know, the, the, the other side to this story is that it is still going on in the sense that people are still re um, reporting sightings of unusual aerial phenomena mm. <clears throat> and suspicious objects. So it had a name, this project, which we quite like. It was the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which tells you very much where the, you know, where the military is coming from on this. Uh, um, but uh, I, as, as far as we understand, you know, it hasn't come up with any answers. It's just identified a lot of very unusual sightings. The ones I've looked at, I found totally unconvincing. Uh, one or two were, were on the web. Um, they look like blobs of light, and often that's all UFOs are. Uh, the science world, of course, remains highly skeptical uh, because the, the evidence is that, um, for all we know about both physics and astrobiology, uh, first of all, it seems very. It seems as though life, as we know it, is extremely rare. At least higher order life forms like ourselves, uh, and also that the laws of physics do seem to apply pretty firmly throughout the universe. So, things that can fly without wings or can defy gravity uh, are, you know, we we remain skeptical about those. Of course, we're always we're always happy to learn. Um, so, if an alien came and gave us um, uh, anti gravity 101. We'd be delighted. Now, Fred, you and I have talked about the likelihood of um, intelligent extraterrestrial life, and I think we've both sort of come to the conclusion that it's probably not out there, um, given the age of the universe and where we're positioned in it and the, the possibilities of, of uh, advanced development. But uh, we do agree that there will probably be microbial life to be found 
probably within our solar system within a very short period of time. But could we be wrong? Could there be intelligent life somewhere else out there? Uh, absolutely, and and that's the you know that's the really niggling thing about this. You can never prove that you're going to be wrong until some, something rocks up and does aerobatics in front of your airman, uh, and um, you know essentially um, shows off that uh, there are technologies. But I think the coming back to this particular uh, you know this particular venture. Uh, I think it's really geared at trying to find out whether other foreign powers than the USA have got technology that the USA doesn't have. Yeah, that, uh, that's probably that's, more likely to be the answer, isn't it? It's it's yeah. someone on Earth that's come up with a, a new concept and they're doing some test flights and, yeah, someone saw them. Simple. Simple that explanation. And, and usually the simplest explanation is likely to be the right one. It's um, it, nevertheless, it's very intriguing. Uh, it's it's uh, intriguing. In fact, the senator who uh, who uh, basically um, uh, kicked off this uh, this investigation, he, he tweeted something that says, "If anybody says they have the answers, they're fooling themselves. We don't know the answers, but we've plenty of evidence to support asking the questions. This is about science." and national security. If America doesn't take the lead in answering these questions, others will. So, um, you know, a fairly robust uh, response to people saying, why have you been wasting $20 million mm. on looking for UFOs? And, and 13 million pages worth of data, I think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, incredible. All right, well, we'll watch with interest, but I doubt that anyone's going to tell us what's happening. You're <laughs> listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space nuts. Finally, Fred, and it is finally for this year. We're going to take a couple of weeks off after this. Uh, I think most people will be. Um, we're going to talk about uh, a Christmassy thing, and that is the uh, the Star of Wonder or the Star of Bethlehem, the star that guided the three wise men. Um, often the question comes up as to whether or not it's re uh, real or was real. Um, what was it? really and or didn't it happen at all and it's it's all a myth uh, it's a good question and one that's probably been analyzed over time and do we know the answer uh we we've got a few answers um some of which are more credible than others uh, andrew um the, the the biblical account uh is in the gospel according to saint matthew and um, basically, uh, you, you, when you read through that, um, it talks about uh, some kind of subtleties. Uh, for example, they'd seen a star in the east uh, that these, these magi, the, the three wise men, um, they were probably Persian sort of mystic astrologers. Uh, that's, you know, probably their origin. They, they journeyed to Jerusalem because they had interpreted uh, the astro astrological events as being about uh, a new ruler. And, and they um, basically asked the king, who's, of course, Herod, about this, uh, you know, this, this, um, this new ruler. Uh, and he was clearly miffed about this because yeah. he was the boss. Uh, and, um, but what was, what's really interesting, and this rules out many astronomical possibilities. Herod had to ask the wise men uh, when and where 
the star appeared because he and his his own uh, astrologers couldn't see it or weren't aware of it. So that sort of rules out things like a supernova or a comet, a bright object. And it means that it has to be something a good bit more subtle than this. Mm. Uh, and it turns out, and this is a, it's an explanation that's been around for well, quite a long time. I remember talking about it in, in Edinburgh uh, 30 years ago. Uh, but it's uh, basically to do with the motion of the planets and unusual configurations of the planets. Um, you can, you also have to, uh, you also have to um, interpret the the biblical account um, in a in a way that perhaps is a little bit more uh, investigative than just taking the King James version that talked about the star um, uh, in the east guiding the wise men uh, and that it stood still over the you know over the over the place where Jesus was born. Um, it's it's not that kind of it's it's not that kind of phenomenon. Um, for a start, the the journey from uh, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem would take these guys to the south rather than to the east. So they've they've got to be aware of of things taking place in the east, um, and it, it basically um, is something that we would probably call it uh, a heliacal rising. That it means that something like, and it's probably the planet Jupiter that we're talking about, a very bright object, uh, just appears above the eastern horizon before dawn breaks. Ah. Uh, it's that kind of thing. Um, and so it, that is one of the things. There is uh, There are all sorts of other astrological subtleties. Uh, Jupiter was in the constellation of Leo, which was a, a regal constellation. Um, it it basically uh, had uh, later on had a had a lunar occultation. So the exactly what we've just been talking about, the moon passed in front of Jupiter, and and the idea of it standing still comes about probably because of um, the way planets commonly behave. The outer planets, uh, as you see them from the Earth, they actually progress through the sky in a kind of zigzag pattern because they go forward. Uh, for a long time, then suddenly they stop and go backwards, and then they go stop again and then go forwards. And it's mm. because of the uh, the way that our vantage point on Earth is moving around the sun. Uh, it gives us a different perspective on the outer planets. And, and, and so just uh, by way of an explanation to that, I think I've witnessed something similar while uh, taking off in an airliner from Sydney Airport. I remember looking out the window as we took off once and we were banking east to go out over the ocean. And I looked out the window and there was another airliner that had taken off ahead of us. And as I looked at it, I could swear it was not moving. Yeah, it's, it became stationary. Yeah, right. yeah. And so that's the sort of effect you're talking about. It, it, it is. It's the same sort of thing. That's right. You sort of overtake it. We call them, um, we, we call the, the, the times at which the planets appear to stand still uh, with great imagination. We call them stationary points. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that's that's uh, when, when that phenomenon happens. Uh, so all these events took place actually in 6 BC uh, by our con contemporary dating. And um, it's it, throughout most of 6 BC from about April to December, there were all these really significant astrological portents uh, that um, that informed the wise men that they needed to get uh, find out what was going on uh, down there near Jerusalem, and so um, 
you know this this uh, really uh, rather uh, uh, rather a lot in that account that you can you can trace back to early mythology and, and early astrology. Uh, one of the scientists, uh, one of the many scientists who's who's written about uh, this stuff is a professor of astronomy at Vanderbilt University. His name is uh, David Weintraub, a very prolific astronomy writer. He winds up his account of the Star of Bethlehem by saying, uh, Matthew wrote to convince his readers that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. Given the astrological clues embedded in his gospel, he must have believed the story of the Star of Bethlehem would be convincing evidence for many in his audience. It's just saying that these astrological uh, ideas were probably pretty well instilled in people's minds, um, you know, even if they weren't uh, practicing mystics or astrologers like the three wise men were. Mm, interesting. Uh, so I suppose we can say that this was a normal event and there's been a bit of Chinese whispering over the last couple of thousand years. <laughs> um, one, one final question. Uh, can we, uh, I, I know we, you can do a lot of sort of reverse plotting in uh, astronomy using mathematics. Can we backtrack mathematically to see if something like this happened around that time or is that too complicated? Yeah. Exactly, yes, that's exactly what's happened um, because you can do that you know, many, many thousands of years before uh, the birth of Christ. Um, it's, uh, so, so that's why, you know, it's why um, astronomers are so, uh, so, I guess, enamored of the idea of it being one of these conjunctions plus stationary points plus the rest of it. And just to, um, you know, clarify slightly, I think the combination of events that took place in 6 BC was pretty rare. There was, um, you know, a a planet, the heliacal rising of Jupiter, there was various appropriate constellations, other planetary positions, this occultation. uh, It's really uh, strong stuff when you plug it into the astrological understanding of the time. These were relatively rare planetary configurations. So for Um, people to witness it at a time where knowledge of the universe was fairly limited, they would have seen that as some kind of uh, miracle or or some sort of sign. And and that's 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 what's been documented. Mm. Indeed, that's right. And the sky watchers, you know, the sort of professional sky watchers, which were the, the, the wise men, uh, they they got it, uh, whereas Herod and his his gang didn't because they hadn't seen these phenomena. Yeah, fascinating. All right. Well, there's an explanation, accept it or not. Yes. <laughs> but that that's. It's, uh... I mean, you know, it, it, it's as with all these things, you you have to preface any kind of astronaut. Um, astronomical discussion of the star of Bethlehem uh, with the uh, you basically got to take out the possibility of it being a miracle because if it's a miracle all bets are off yeah. um, you know astronomy doesn't deal in miracles we don't know about that stuff there could also be the argument that um, the creator of the universe knew this was going to happen and timed the birth of his son accordingly there you go. There you go. I mean you know there's another there's another angle yeah it's another interpretation. Quite so. All right, Fred, um, as always, thank you so much. And thank you for another fantastic year on Space Nuts. We've really enjoyed it. Uh, you, you're uh, a joy to talk to and uh, the audience is certainly responding. And we do thank the audience too for, uh, for following us and for downloading us in great numbers and, uh, and our numbers continue, uh, continue to grow. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for a great year. 
Great pleasure, Andrew. Have a good couple of weeks off and we'll talk in 2018. We will indeed. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. As always, uh, I would like to uh, thank you uh, for listening. Thank you for sending us your questions. Keep doing so via Facebook and Twitter. And we look forward to your company again uh, with the next edition of Space Nuts in a couple of weeks' time. And have a Merry Christmas. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.